Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. In peace, there's nothing so becomes a man as modest stillness and humility. But when the blast of war blows in our ears, then imitate the action of the tiger. Good dawning to you, friend. Welcome to Heavenly Shows and Unnecessary Letters, a podcast where we watch and then talk about a production of every single play written by William Mary Shakespeare, who needs no introduction. But we do. So I'm Tammy Sarah Lindy. And I'm Luke O'Hagan. This week on Heavenly Shows and Unnecessary Letters, we watched As You Like It, directed by Basil Coleman for the BBC in 1978 and shot on location at Glamis Castle in Scotland, written in 1599 by the William Shakespeare. Our original intention was to watch the 2006 Kenneth Branagh-directed film adaptation of As You Like It, but as we were organising what productions we were going to watch of which plays, I went through the BBC Television Shakespeare, which is a set of productions that were filmed from 1975 to 1985, producing every single Shakespeare play for BBC Television. And as I was going through those, I happened upon the cast list for As You Like It, which was, as we said, made in 1978, and it stars a 27-year-old Helen Mirren. So we decided, that sounds like a great idea, we should do that. So we did. We watched this one instead, and we had a great experience, I think. Something like that. Yes. (laughs) Do you want to explain the synopsis? Yes. So we're going to give you a synopsis for every play, just in case you haven't seen it before. But we're not going to go through everything. Some of these plays are quite long. They have quite winding plots. So instead of giving you a 15-paragraph synopsis, we're going to give you a one-tweet-length synopsis. 280 characters. So, take it away, Tammy. Here goes. Rosalind, the daughter of the deposed and exiled former Duke, is exiled by her uncle, the new Duke. She goes to the Forest of Arden, where she hides disguised as a man, is wooed by her professional wrestler boyfriend, and ends up in a mass 70s wedding officiated by an actual god. So, yes. let's start with the play. What did you think of the play? I think it's a weird play. I think that the play itself is odd and strange and I don't know that I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I you know, we're, we're very careful going into this whole process. They're not all great. No. Like Shakespeare does fantastic plays, but not all of his plays are great. Not all of them have aged as well as some of the others. Uh, is aging really a thing that is... No, I don't think aging is even a part of my consideration on this. <laughs> not for this one. Okay, not for this one. So thematically, it's a bit strange because a lot of the other, the, a lot of the great Shakespeare plays have sort of big bombastic themes. They deal with betrayal and love and you know all these fantastic themes. Whereas this 
play's overarching theme seems to be how great it is to be outside. Yeah, well, I mean, there is that bit where um, the court jester dude and the shepherd are, like, walking through a field waxing lyrical on the pros and cons of living in court versus living in a field. Yeah, well, you know, outside is really great, and... They say that over and over again. The entire second act is dedicated to guys camping in a field. Yes. And to to bring it back to the adaptation, uh, so this was filmed in Scotland. It was actually filmed in Scotland during the spring. And it's just about the least intimidating looking forest I've ever seen in my life. Like it's not it's not threat like the idea that these the 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 Duke and this this Duke's men have been exiled to this forest to live out their days is you know, not really represented, supported by the setting that they're in. It, it's quite lovely. It's like lovely glades that they lounge in, and it's very unusual. It's strange. But I suppose the whole point of, of these BBC television Shakespeare adaptations is to create a canon for Shakespeare, like a, a complete recorded canon, so everything is in there and you can go and watch everything, which is something that's going to help us a lot later on. Yeah, well, I mean, they did set out to complete a project. They haven't they haven't made these for necessarily great film, but they've made them as almost archival footage of all Shakespeare's work. It's it's kind of like a uh, an addendum to the written work. It's, it's kind of this idea of we've captured the essence of all the Shakespeare plays. And... To be fair, they have done that. That is definitely something something that I think they've achieved in this particular film version. But what I feel is that it, I don't think it has done Shakespeare, the work of Shakespeare. Not that, you know, obviously there are some people who consider Shakespeare a god. And I'm not necessarily one of those people. I know you aren't either. But I think definitely there is an element where you want to sort of highlight the good stuff of Shakespeare. And in this play, there are some good bits, which everybody knows and are the famous bits, but the rest of the play, look, there's a lot of sand around the gold nuggets. Absolutely. And I mean, another thing to keep in mind about this particular adaptation is that it is 1978. Yeah. And it is very, very 1978. Yeah. Um, it's also not a sort of modern ap- adaptation. It is no. a period piece. To a degree. Like, I feel that the, the periodness of it is definitely through a 1970s lens. Well, absolutely. A lot of the costuming and things like that are still definitely 1970s influenced. In the 1600s, the tights weren't quite so peachy. Well, they didn't have lycra back then. They didn't have any elastic. So, you know, no one wore tights that looked like they weren't wearing anything. Like some of these tights looked like they were kind of velour, you know, moose knuckle material. Oh, they were definitely moose knuckle material. (laughs) (laughs) But to continue on with the costumes, most important point, of course, is the hats. (laughs) Now, as we go through this process of watching 39 plays, I'm recording various statistics on what we're doing. And one of the statistics I'm going to be recording is how many times do I write in my notes, nice hat? Because I love a good hat. You do. And this play has some absolute doozies. (laughs) Just an absolute banger. The, The most important one is, of course, the hats worn by the characters of Rosalind and Celia at the beginning of the film, which... Kind of look like someone has upturned a bra on their head and covered it in gilt fabric. A little bit. It also reminds me of a show that used to be on TV years and years ago called The Flying Nun. 
right. with her headdress garb, like it was really big. Um, and so it's kind of like a 16th century version of the Flying Nun for me, which is hilarious. The second nice hat in this was a hat worn by Touchstone the Jester later on in the piece. And it's not a traditional Jester's hat with the points and bells, but it was more of a sort of straight-up foot-and-a-half-long Marge Simpson do. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was it was definitely conical shaped, uh, collapsible. Um, so one could its... take, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the other thing I'd like to say about the adaptation of the work is that I understand that they tried to create sort of a work of Shakespearean canon. However, with this particular adaptation, you could have at least a little bit cut harder. There's a lot of boring things on on screen uh for example act two which is completely useless um there's a lot of stuff that was clearly put in there to provide cover for actors changing yeah but i mean that's in that's in modern theater now like have we not done musicals especially recently where there's a whole song just to cover a costume change yes i'm saying that when you put it on television that presumably shouldn't be there well yes but then at what point, at what line do you draw that something is not valid because it's clearly fill-in material? I'm talking, of course, about the part where two young boys run into the field and start to sing to Touchstone while he's wooing his fiance. And it, it's a classic classic Shakespearean song. Lots of Hey Nonny Nonnies. Yeah, lots of Hey Nonny Nonnies. Super, super long. But made somewhat entertaining by the fact that these young children obviously have no camera skills and keep making the blooming camera the whole way through their song. It's entertaining, but otherwise it doesn't need to be there. So you're agreeing with me then that there, there are definitely parts of the show that could be cut. Yes, so let's advocate to cut more of the words written by the greatest playwright who's ever lived. Yeah. Yeah, there, there's a lot of stuff that can be cut in Shakespeare. Casting and individual performances, Luke. Yes. So obviously the main thing to talk about in any production of As You Like It, but definitely in this production of As You Like It, is the character of Rosalind, who is an incredible female character written in 1599, but fantastic in a modern sense just an incredibly well-rounded character and Helen Mirren did the job one would expect Helen Mirren to do in that role I think. I agree with that there were elements of her performance right at the beginning of the play and I wasn't completely sold on this idea that you know she's this wonderful actor and I was like I was kind of waiting for more but once she actually makes the transition into the costumed male disguise and her behavior I really found that interesting because instead of leaning hard oh I'm going to be a man right which is something you see in some productions of Shakespeare is that when the character is disguised they try to put on the aspect of what they think a stereotypical opposite gender is I feel that Helen really sort of lent into this idea of the man she was disguised as was still effeminate and very casual and very um, genteel rather than being a young lad. See, to me, it felt like she was playing a young woman pretending to be a man who doesn't yeah. really know what she was doing. And it was, it was wonderful in that way. There's a lot of uh, parts with her, especially when she is talking to her 
uh, at this point, the person who is wooing her, Orlando, mm-hmm. she's talking to him later in the play, and it's shot with her facing away from him, and you can see the girlishness on her face, yes, which goes away as soon as she turns around back to him. He's she's back into I'm Ganymede, I am the I'm masculine. And yeah, there's definitely the duality of the of the characters there. There's also a wonderful part that happens in the first scene when we see her dressed as Ganymede, where she's dressed in a tunic and she's dressed in tights, mm-hmm. and she has a sword. But the sword, instead of wearing it on her hip, as you'd see a man wear wear a sword, she's literally wearing it between her legs in a very sort of phallic way, gripping it between her legs in, again, a very phallic way. And I can, I can only think... That it is a purposeful choice by her because it's not it's never drawn it's never drawn attention to, mm. but it is exactly the kind of uh, point you would s- expect to see from a great actress trying to think okay, how does a young woman think men behave? Yes, most definitely that was a choice by Helen. Yeah, one hundred percent. I almost feel like it was cut around. It was uh, you, you only saw it for the briefest time, but she's literally walking around just gripping herself. It's, it's really fantastic. Yes, and I think that's a beautiful example of the small glimpses we see of the, the potential boardiness of this play. I think this play could be so much funnier if you leaned really hard into the sexuality of this play. I feel like that... This play was definitely written by Shakespeare to be a trashy thing for his stage. And I think we revere it too much and you miss that good... Yeah, anyway. Yeah, you you, you miss all of the... uh, You miss the dirty. Yeah, you miss the dirty. And dirty is really what it needs to be for this, I feel. I also really liked um, the actor who played... Uh, I think the character's name is LeBeau. Yes. I just referred to him as Gossip Girl of the Court because basically he approaches them right at the beginning of the thing and the quote is, oh no, his mouth is so full of news. And then he proceeds to just talk and talk incessantly. Uh, I wrote down that he has big C-3PO energy. Yes, exactly. It's just that wonderful, big oh yes, darling, kind of energy. But he's got a fantastic look. He looks kind of like a cross between John Cleese and Bill Nye. And he's just wonderful. He, he, he's just, he's a shot in the arm of energy mm. that the first two acts of this play really sorely need, especially considering that his entrance comes directly after the wrestling scene, yeah. which is the best scene in the entire play. But, but I digress. I personally think that uh, Richard Pascoe playing Jaquis and James Bolan playing Touchstone the Fool were both great. In general, I think it's a great play for that slightly more character actory sort of thing. It's not really a great play for your leading men. I mean, the closest thing to a leading man you have in the play is Orlando, who is a worthless character, utterly meaningless. Well, here's the thing, though, is that is he utterly meaningless because of the production we saw, or is he utterly meaningless because it's a badly written play? No, I think it's utterly meaningless because that's the best way to make a play about Rosalind work. I think if you made it a play about him, it wouldn't be anywhere near as good. Yeah. Because the play hinges on the best written character, which is Rosalind, doing Rosalind stuff. Yeah. And he's almost like, you know, a, a personified MacGuffin. It doesn't, he's just there to be a, a target for Rosalind to do things to and to have these fantastic conversations with. 
his character is important because you need to have someone to be a foil to Rosalind there. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that it's... I don't think anyone's gagging to play Orlando. I don't think anyone's writing down Orlando from As You Like It is the character I've always wished to play in the Shakespearean canon. That's true. I agree with that. I'm also not 100% sold on um, Angred Reads as Celia and Victoria Plucknett as Phoebe. It's kind of interesting. Those are both great roles. Um, those two women are great roles. But I think it'd be difficult to cast because I think they can get overshadowed quite a lot. And I think that's what's happened here. I mean, yes, but I also know that the Phoebe, Phoebe monologues, especially from this show, are highly coveted because of the way that she speaks about Ganymede. Um, and I know that they're very popular audition pieces. So it's kind of this idea that you know, Rosalind and Phoebe, especially from this production, from this play, are not necessarily coveted roles, but there are definitely standout speeches from those characters that are highly coveted. So that, you know, it's kind of that thing of Shakespeare is that, like, you're listening and you kind of pick up certain things, but then when you hear something familiar, all of a sudden your ear really turns into it and you go, oh, I know that. Well, a fantastic example of that is the most famous monologue Maybe from all of Shakespeare. Oh, probably not from mm. all of Shakespeare because Hamlet. But very, very famous Shakespearean monologue from this show. You know, all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. Yes. Comes from the show and is a great monologue. Yep. You know, delivered by uh, Jaquis, but doesn't really do anything in terms of the plot. It just comes, it literally comes out of nowhere. Like there are two old dudes or a bunch of old dudes sitting around the forest yammering on and I'm not gonna lie I nodded like I was not listening I just was not interested and I guarantee you that at this point is definitely where you would go for a pee break um while they're rabbiting on and then all of a sudden he turns around with this profound speech but the thing is is that it's such it's in the middle of nowhere it's not after anything it's not before anything because the next thing that happens is Orlando comes in to try and rob them because his old I think a priest that lived on the estate with him when they left the estate was like I'm strong and lusty and then they get into the forest and he's like oh I'm dying and so Orlando has to try and rob these guys to try and get some food for his well, dying priest who we never actually see again for the entire show that happens what you're talking about just there happens before the monologue and then oh. he go he's convinced by the duke to go off and get his this old servant that he's brought yeah and as he's going off to get the old servant is when he delivers this monologue. So I guess the, the thematic link is that people get old, which is, I guess, what the whole monologue is about. Yeah. But I don't know really how that uh, informs the show itself. Oh, it's irrelevant to the actual play. Yeah. Nothing to do with the plot, nothing to do with any of these other characters. Really, the worst parts of the show were the bits where Orlando, would do, where Orlando was doing Orlando stuff. It, yeah. You know? Although I have to say that that one shot where it's revealed that Orlando is writing letters in the forest, that reveal shot, oh, mwah, pure, absolute comic brilliance from the BBC there. I do want to give one shout out to the background and bit part actors of this production who did excellent work. They were just so wonderful to watch in the background, but also every so often they would get a line. And they they clearly had a heart on for Shakespeare. Like they were just the way they would deliver it would be just a little more dramatic. 
It was just funny. I liked it. I just wanted to give them a shout out. You're getting a paycheck. You might as well do something to work for it. Yeah. So uh, the favorite plot points we have of the original play, I think you and I are both in agreement that the best scene in the play, which is also a very weird scene uh, from a plot point of view, is the first scene where Orlando meets the bedragged Rosalind, who is named Ganymede when she is in her male persona. Uh, Rosalind has found all of these poems that Orlando has written for her, and they interact for the first time. And the performance in that scene is just absolutely wonderful. From a writing point of view, from all the stuff that Rosalind is given to do, uh, which is not stuff that I think would be traditionally given to a woman in these roles. You know, she definitely has the power in the conversation. She definitely pushes Orlando, I think. Do, do you agree? Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think I think it's... Um, I think that there's actually a common theme through Shakespeare's work that there is a strong female character that's pushing some action through it, and I think that appears more often than not. And I think that's fairly much attributed to the fact that he's writing in the time of Queen Elizabeth. Absolutely. And so that's... That is an influence on his work because, of course, you want to please your patron, whom she was through connections and whatever, and this isn't a history podcast, so I'm not going to go into that. Yes. But um, I think the context of the day is an influence in his work. There's a fantastic quote from Germaine Greer talking about uh, feminism and with regards to Shakespeare's work. And uh, I don't believe that um, the question of whether or not Shakespeare is a feminist is particularly an interesting question. But what Germaine Greer said about it was that Shakespeare wasn't a feminist, he just wrote women as if they were people. Yes. And this is definitely an example of that. And I think Rosalind, the contrast between Rosalind and Celia is kind of a demonstration of that. Like, Celia oh, yeah. seems to be very much a character who is a, you know, ditzy flibbertigibbet, and Rosalind is an actual person. Yes. Yeah. Um, but just really, really fantastic scene. And Act 2 is so bad. Act 2 is so boring and so little happens in Act 2 of this play that the energy in that scene just wakes you up and it's like, oh, I'm interested in this again now. Yeah. Act 2 is definitely the pee break. So what are other examples of, of scenes that particularly touched you in this in this play? I think I definitely struggled with the plot point of... Hey, I'm a strange dude in the woods and you've never met me before and I've never met you before and you should totally, like, flirt with me and try to hit on me as if I was your actual girlfriend and I insist on you calling me your girlfriend's name. And Orlando being like, at first, oh, it seems a bit weird. No, dude, trust me, I got this. Okay. It, it's not like he had to twist Orlando's arm. No. You know, like, I'm just... I just, I just struggle with the plot point, you know. I just, I just, I just also, well, also, if you're going to have a wedding conducted by a god, then um, you know, there's no personification of that better than 1978's Hyman. Oh, just absolutely wonderful. He literally looks like he's rolled off the uh, Friends of Jesus hippie bus, um, tossed on a toga, and just just walks out. I, I love the Juice X Machina, and yeah. this is li like literally. A god walks in and marries everyone. Which was very confusing for me because I had no idea who, what the heck was happening because I didn't realise there was a god in this play. Yeah. And so when this half-naked dude starts walking them in as if they look like they're straight out of a Greek mythology, 
I was just, I actually said while we were watching it on the couch, I was like, who's this dude? Like, yeah. where did he come from? And he looks like, it looks like Greek mythology because that's what he is. Yeah, but I just, like, I, it's such a hard left turn that I just, you don't, there, there's no other mention that I can tell that of any sort of gods, you know, participating. And it, no one seems perturbed that this half-dressed man just suddenly appears. Like, it's just, yeah, look, I have problems with the play. I mean, they're all, they're all getting what they want. They're all getting married. But for Ugh. me, for me personally, mm-hmm. the best part of the show, from a plotting point of view, occurs in Act 1. Yeah. Now, if you know anything about me, I am a big fan of professional wrestling. For me, pro wrestling is the truest form of theatre that we have in the modern era. And definitely... If you took pro wrestling and put it in the globe in 1600, they would 100% understand it. Yeah. It was, it's very much that. And that's fantastic because in Act 1, there is a wrestling match. <laughs> and not just something that looks like a wrestling match. There is a whole plot point about Orlando going and wrestling the Duke's wrestler, who is Charles. But by the way, I bet you dollars to donuts that when this was done in Shakespeare's day, the actor playing Charles was a famous wrestler. Because when you think about it, like, he's only in the first act. Yeah. And It he, might have been a cameo, yeah. Yeah, it, it just really, really feels like that. And, God, I just absolutely, I, I adored it. It kind of scratched my itch to, you know, secretly be a wrestling podcaster. It's, it's, it's... <laughs> <laughs> I wrote in my notes, wrestling, bringing people together since the 1500s. Uh, honestly, if you want to see Shakespeare the way it's meant to be done, go watch a pro wrestling show. Yeah. Or a Wu-Tang Clan concert. They're both exactly the same. But it's just just really wonderful. I absolutely loved it. Now, that's that's what we liked. Let's nitpick a bit. What did you not like about this play that you've said five times that you didn't like? <laughs> um, I just, I really struggle with this plot point of Orlando just agreeing to flirt with some dude in the forest. I, I think... I think more specifically the fact that when Ganymede insists that he calls her Rosalind, that he's okay with that. Like, I would I would feel really uncomfortable if someone met me on the street and or came up to me while I was sitting in a park and said, hey, you seem to be in love with someone and I can help you not be in love anymore. I think you should flirt with me and call me Luke. And I, I, I kind of feel like that, that's, it's just weird. Look, I, I mean, one, first of all, Orlando as a character is clearly very stupid. Clearly dumb as a sack of bricks. He's got a bit of the, you know, the, the physical, physical intelligence as showed by the wrestling match. But as it's not just that he's dumb enough to agree with it. It's the fact that she decides that this is the best course of action to woo the man she thinks she wants to marry. Look, it's not the best course of action, certainly, but it is the funniest course of action. Oh, yeah. So, and But, then, but that's where I come back to. If you're going to do this play, why not lean into the funny? Well, you'd have to. It, it, it's a comedy, and this particular production does not bring the funny as often as it, maybe it should. No, I don't think so. I definitely don't, especially considering that it's made... In 1978, and my very stereotypical knowledge of the 70s being what it is, 
I feel like they missed a great opportunity to have lent into that real sexuality, bawdy, like dirty nature of the play. Like I think that would have helped it make sense. Like, you know, leaning into this idea that Orlando probably knows they're going to meet as Rosalind. You know what I mean? And just playing along, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I, I mean, I don't know. Like like I said before, I, th- I think he works best as a foil. And I think his knowing participation would make that scene less funny. But there's also, there's a bit of, there's a bit of underlying knowledge there. Like um, the, the story of Ganymede yeah. in, in Greek mythology is a story of sort of, um, of homoerotic love. Yeah. And that's that kind of knowledge, which would have been fairly standard in the time when this was written, uh, does make that scene a bit funnier because of, you know, this is what it appears to be, but what it actually is is Rosalind tweaking his nose and doing it to make fun of this gentleman that she's decided is going to be her, you know, husband. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also had a funny moment where we were watching the show and... The moment came to me as randomly as my insertion into this podcast at this moment of the fact that the screen we were watching was square on oh, our yeah. rectangle TV. Well, the four by three, yeah, four yeah, by three. yeah, yeah. It's um, the I think the only four by three things we're going to watch are going to be are going to be the BBC television productions. Oh yeah, yeah, all the BBC ones, yeah. It's uh, like I didn't notice it, and then all of a sudden I did, and then I couldn't unsee it. Yes, it was strange. What about you? What was your Nitpicking. I mean, my, my big. Spl- I've already talked about uh, all the world's a stage and how it's fantastic, but kind of useless. Yeah. There's a lots of other stuff in this show that's fantastic, but mostly useless. Um, there is a scene towards the end of the show where Touchstone delivers this long monologue about seven different arguments that people have. It's something that clearly exists to give people time on stage to, because I believe it happens as Ros- uh, Ganymede leaves for the last time and she's about to come on as Rosalind, so there's got to be time there. But it's really long, and by, you know, Act 5, Scene 4, we're ready for this to be over. We're ready to wrap it up. Um, and, you know, that's kind of my general nitpick with a whole bunch. There's a whole lot of stuff in this in this show that it, it drags at the beginning, it's fantastic in the middle, and then it drags again towards the end. It's only two and a half hours long. Well, I mean, this version was only two and a half <laughs> yeah, hours I long. Yeah, I suppose, but, you know, they didn't cut that much. Yeah, they didn't cut that much, but when you think about the speed that film adds to the movement of things, yeah, I suppose. even though they didn't like cut a lot of the stuff where you could add movement through the magic of film, but... Even if, if it was a live play, there would be even more laboriousness between moments and things like that. Yes. Uh, the, the, and the only other thing I would say in terms of the, uh, the nitpicks and things about this play is the characters, the duo of Phoebe and Silvius, who are a pastoral couple of shepherds that exist in the world of the forest and are there for... I don't know, reasons passing understanding. I suppose they have a little bit of interaction with Rosalind and Phoebe wants to marry Ganymede as, as Rosalind's drag king persona. It's not hugely necessary. I mean, she's a fantastic character. Um, it's almost like she's there to give evidence that Rosalind is a believable man. Like, so believable that another woman would fall in love with him. I suppose. And that's the only purpose she really serves in this particular plot point. And this is what I mean by, you know, if we need evidence that she's really that believable, 
then it makes it even weirder that Orlando's like, yeah, okay, I'll call you Rosalind and I'll flirt with you even though you're clearly a dude. Yeah, sure. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's kind of, you can have one or the other. I have problems when you have both. Yeah, the characters of Sylvius and Phoebe could have been in any play. And a lot of their scenes, I think, probably were just written. And it's just these two people, this man who wants this woman to marry her and this woman who's not interested. And he, it feels, it feels like those scenes were just written as like, okay, this is a good place. Let's put them in this play that we're putting out. Same with All the World's a Stage. Yeah. It's probably a fantastic piece that he had written and he said, well, it kind of works here, so we're going to put it in. Yeah, I agree. Do you have any favorite quotes or moments from the play? In general, the whole epilogue is excellent. So this is a scene where uh, we, everyone's just got married in a mass wedding and they've had a dance, as all, you know, Shakespearean comedies have to end with everyone having a dance. And then uh, Rosalind turns to the camera. It's the first thing that's addressed to the camera in the whole show. And she delivers us this epilogue. And the epilogue is about how weird epilogues are and how weird it is to have a woman delivering the epilogue. And it's just wonderful. It's just like the most wonderful little touch on the the touch of garnish on the end of the play. I mean, most of Shakespeare's plays have prologues and epilogues that are just not usually used. But my favourite part about this particular one and its use in this particular film is the fact that Helen looks directly in the camera, looks it straight down the barrel and says, if I were a woman, and then takes a moment to raise her eyebrows in some kind of little sarcastic moment because obviously the original player delivering that line would have been a man and so it's taken this opportunity of modernity to go if I were a woman raises eyebrows yeah because of the fact that she is a woman and she can deliver this monologue even though the original writer and the original intent was to make fun of the fact that it's clearly not a woman But if they were, we would do this stereotypical thing. Yes. And in the epilogue, there is a section where he says, um, good plays don't need epilogues, but good epilogues make plays better. And I can't tell whether or not this is a good play or a good epilogue. Yes. And that just seems to really focus in on Shakespeare's whole attitude towards this specific play. Yes. You know, it is definitely not high art. No. Uh, But I love that he acknowledged that. I love it when creatives kind of give a wink and a nod and say, you know, I know what this work is. Mm. Other quotes that I really, really liked and and sections of of writing specifically. Mm. uh, Silvius, uh, who is the stupid young uh, shepherd who's looking to marry Phoebe, has a wonderful duologue from Act 5, Scene 2, which is him listing what love is. And it's, it's kind of like First Corinthians from the Bible, but better because Shakespeare wrote it. And I want to see it at more weddings. It's really, really lovely. Uh, Phoebe has a monologue from Act 3, Scene 5 about the kind of man she'd marry. And it reads almost exactly the same as Benedict's similar monologue from Much Ado About Nothing. But just really, it's so very similar. Lots of like, I want a pretty man, not too pretty. You know, it's really great. There's, uh, Jake was, is a fantastic character, just melancholy, sad, dry, really great, like, character I'd love to play. And he has a, a wonderful moment with Rosalind where, uh, they talk, they're talking about him being a melancholy fellow. And he says, tis good to be sad and say nothing. And she replies, tis good to be a post. 
which I think that's just really, really wonderful. But my favorite writing in this play was Shakespeare writing bad poetry. Uh, both Orlando's poems about Rosalind that he staples to the trees and also Phoebe's letter to Ganymede about how much she loves him and wants to be with him. Just really clearly him writing awful poetry on purpose. Well, I mean, we assume it was on purpose. No, it has to be. Like, like, because, look, let's put it this way. The man could write poetry, right? Well, yes. And this is someone, this is the writing of someone who incredibly could not. And it almost feels like he's poking fun at someone. I mean, it's possible that this play was an entire vehicle to, like, was a political thing at the time it was written where someone was criticising Shakespeare's plays and maybe it was someone who wasn't a great playwright or a great writer in general and that person, Shakespeare's like, you know, maybe it was a public thing and, and people knew about it and he was like, oh, you want to you see? This is an example of this person's writing and these are and this is why we have these great passages throughout the piece that aren't really linked together because... Um, because Shakespeare's demonstrating that he can write poetry and this is a total conspiracy theory and we should move on. I, I mean, look, all I'll say is that there's two separate sections where Touchstone is criticising the poetry and his criticism of the poetry is much better poetry than the poetry itself. Yeah. He talks about the tree bearing bad fruit and saying that people need to make sure that people do not read poems ill-favouredly. And it's just, you know, I really liked it. I, I, I like that. I think it's ironic in the best way. What were your favourite quotes from the piece? I definitely found a new uh, great insult to add to my list. I love Shakespearean insults. They're wonderful. Right at the beginning of the play, the older brother of Orlando. Oliver. Oliver. Is that his name? Ah, uh, yes. Right. It shows you how much the first bit of this play makes an impact. Well, Oliver is talking to himself, i.e. the camera, about his brother Orlando, saying that I would physic your rankness. So basically saying, like, I would get rid of you out of my life. But, uh, yeah, I would physic your rankness. Just sounds wonderfully gritty. Um, I also really loved, I don't remember who it was or why they said it or when they said it, but someone in the play said, I will kill you 150 ways. It's really great. It was just a wonderful delivery, and I just laughed, and it was just... Yeah, I really liked it. So, would you watch this adaptation again? No. No. <laughs> I don't think I could watch this adaptation again. Would you watch the show again? Would you watch As You Like It again? I might. I'm on the fence about it. I think that I would try, I would consider trying the Branagh 2006 version that we mentioned yes. at the top. Um, because when I read the Wikipedia page, it sounds like a real treat. Um <laughs> But I think unless someone was making a parody version of this or like, who are the brothers that make films? Coen brothers. The Coen brothers. Like if the Coen brothers brothers did a parody version of this movie, I think I could watch that most definitely. I think that would be hilarious. But for me, I think I'm just happy listening to the famous bits and giving the rest a miss. Yeah. I mean... For me, it really depends. I don't think I'm going to seek out another film adaptation of it, but in terms of stage adaptations, it really depends on who's playing Rosalind. That's the whole ball game. That's that's the entire show. This this show is one character who has a phenomenal part, and if you had a phenomenal actor doing it, it would be fantastic. Like I know lots of great female actors in Brisbane where we live, and giving them the chance to do this kind of role 
that would that I'd buy that ticket. That'd put my butt in a seat. Yeah, fair. Yeah. I still don't know that I'd see it again. <laughs> oh. But that's me, and and we can disagree. We can do that because we're adults. Absolutely. How many spears would you shake at this play? Three spears. Now, just to be clear, there isn't a uh, scale that this is on. The spears don't matter. This rating system makes no sense. I would shake two spears at it. So less spears than you, which is weird because it seemed like I enjoyed it more than you, but I think I'm just a harder marker. Yes, more than likely you are definitely a harder marker. And now a sonnet that is not Sonnet 18. Sonnet 134. So now I have confessed that he is thine. And I myself am mortgaged to thy will. Myself I'll forfeit, so that other mine thou wilt restore, to be my comfort still. But thou wilt not, nor he will not be free, for thou art covetous, and he is kind. He learned but shorty like to write for me under that bond that him as fast doth bind. The statute of thy beauty thou wilt take, thou usurer, that puttest forth all to use, and sue a friend came deader for my sake. So him I lose through my unkind abuse. Him have I lost. Thou hast both him and me. He pays the whole, yet am I not free. You've been listening to Heavenly Shows and Unnecessary Letters. You can follow us on the socials using HSAUL Podcast, where we will also make our show notes available. You can subscribe to Heavenly Shows and Unnecessary Letters anywhere good podcasts are available. Next time, we'll be watching the 2018 National Theatre's production of Antony and Cleopatra. This podcast is produced in partnership with That's Not Canon Productions, and the music is by me, with editing by both Tammy and myself. Thanks to William Shakespeare, Zane, Daryl, Scott, Janet, Bernadette, David, Emily, Kate, Peter and Jason for your help and mentorship. See you next time. While he's wooing some chick that he's found in, I assume, the local town with the biggest I've ever seen. Don't raise your eyebrows at me. What? I just wasn't sure which curses we were allowed to say. Is it a curse? Uh, it is, according to George Carlin, but that's fine. Let's keep Who's going. Who's George Carlin? Oh, dear. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.